G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. From the time Facebook purchased Oculus for $2 billion, virtual reality has been on a fast-track return from oblivion. What does that mean for Australian startups? Well, we'll be asking VR expert Michaela Ledwidge, we'll be interviewing VR pioneer Link Gaskin, and we'll talk to a small VR company growing up right here at Fishburners. So put on your head-mounted display and join us as Twista takes a deep dive into the virtual world. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. On my very first trip to Australia, 19 years ago, I met with one of the folks here who was working at the leading edge of consumer virtual reality. Now, at the time, that meant something was happening on the screen with a computer, not a head-mounted display, but those were early days. Those were pioneering work, and that was Michaela Litwich. And Michaela is in the studio with me today because she is going to be the first person I have invited to co-host an episode of This Week in Startups Australia because her history in virtual reality goes back basically as long as mine. Michaela, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Hi, Mark. Good to be here. So now tell me, VR definitely has taken off. We know that it's partially because Oculus was purchased by Facebook because maybe Zuckerberg wants to have some sort of next generation messenger, but there's a whole lot more going on out in the VR landscape. Could you sort of take us through it? We know that at the low end, there's this thing called the Google Cardboard. Now, what is that? Okay, so there's basically three tiers of VR experience at the moment. And the Google Cardboard is almost Google's two fingers up to Facebook's acquisition said, okay, you've spent a couple of billion here for 20 bucks. You can buy um, a, a little, little viewer. So the, the promise of Google cardboard is that you can plug in your Android smartphone or your iOS uh, iPhone and get uh, a rudimentary, but still workable uh, virtual experience. Right. And it's, it's not as if you get what you pay for, <laughs> which, but, you know, for a few dollars, Look, the fact that you, the fact that um, publishers are now bundling it uh, with uh, you know their products, and the fact that it's you know there's no barrier to entry, right. means at least people can get a taste of something instead of just talking about it. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. And and of course, just to point out, so I'm recording us right now on a Ricoh Theta S. You and I both have these. This is sort of the new cool VR toy, and our podcast listeners will be able to watch this interview on their cardboard if they have an Android device by going and looking at this in YouTube, right? So there's actually this capacity now to be able to shoot what we're calling immersive video. And we saw the New York Times give out how many cardboard viewers last year? I can't remember, but it was thousands. It might have even been a million. So it went out to all of their subscribers, (laughs) both digital and print so that they all would have a viewer because the New York Times is now making films, documentary films using this medium. So are we going to see a lot more content produced specifically for that kind of very low-cost, low-entry virtual reality? I think so. I mean, it's all exploded rather quickly. Uh, I had a project last year where I was kind of off the grid for a few months, and uh, when I re-emerged, it, it seemed like all my peers in town were busy doing pilots for people and playing around with, with the new gadgets but yeah the, the barrier to entry is really low and you can think if you haven't seen the theater it's a bit like the old flip video device mm, that mm. was kind of pre good quality video on your smartphone right and so it's it's like this little handheld gadget and you know, i guess it's it's op- occupying the same part of the ecosystem as the flip did um until this kind of tech is built into everyone's device right and of course we've seen 360 degree cameras now from samsung we've seen them from nikon we've seen them from kodak gopro is promising one so everywhere you turn around i think lg so everywhere you turn around you see someone introducing a new one of these cameras so are they going to be sort of basic consumer gear within the next couple of years then yeah i think so I think so. I mean, it's it it's not necessary, but it's a great novelty and just getting that sense of I mean, for people who've been shooting panoramas or playing around with panoramic stills for mm-hmm. a while, this is a logical progression. Filmmakers are getting excited because they can really give people a sense of place. Mm. So, in fact, there are quite a lot of film and TV professionals who've kind of overlooked what the potential of real VR is and they're squarely focused on 360 video as what 
they, they're basically equating that with with VR. Right. So, so so immersion being the same thing as a fully synthetic environment. That's right. Okay. All right. So we have this. We have millions of these things out there. I actually read a report that McDonald's is building it into the Happy Meal box in Sweden. You'll be able to take your Happy Meal and then. I guess borrow mom's cell phone and put it inside and you'll be able to watch presumably McDonald's branded content. So we now have this world of cheap, not great, but okay, virtual reality viewers. Is there a market here, not just, I guess, for content producers, but also maybe for software companies, for app companies to be able to take advantage of this? If you're a startup, are you thinking about this market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the experience of VR at the moment is very much people trying out their first demos. Mm -hmm. And once that wears off, there's going to be a real need for a robust uh, experience that perhaps is longer, that's perhaps tied in with multiple users experiencing something at the same time, um, being able to move between different apps within the, the same environment without having to take your headset off and, and change it. Right. At the moment, it's all rather fiddly. So I think there's a huge opportunity for improved infrastructure. Uh, that's the space that my studio mod's been playing in, building cloud services that will potentially um, find a niche in this around the staging of shows rather than the content itself mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that it's so so early days there's a lot of room to to identify problems okay so what's the next level up from these very inexpensive cardboard style viewers well it's it's a a better viewer a better viewer that uh, you've like you've got in your hand the galaxy vr um let's see you've managed managed to lose the no, galaxy no, no, vr Here's here's the here's the gear for Fantastic. Okay, so. so this Samsung, this this is the I believe it's the first uh, joint venture with Oculus. Mm -hmm. It's the first certainly the first commercial release product that has right. the Oculus name on it because right. the dev kit is still technically just for non-commercial work. But um, your your Samsung smartphone slots in the front of it. Mm -hmm. It's got a much better focusing system. So I'm extremely well, it has a focusing system which the others don't. Yeah, I mean the I I, I can't. But even with the Oculus dev kit. Kit, which has some uh, degree of changing the lenses, right. you can be really short-sighted and still uh, using the focus system on top of the Galaxy VR. And as someone who is incredibly short-sighted, I will I will assent to the fact that yes, I can actually take my glasses off, which I can't do in most other VR systems. And it's a comfy, it's quite comfy to wear as well, isn't it? I mean, it's got that padding, sort of more like a ski ski mask. Uh, it's certainly better than I thought it would be when I first tried it on. But it's still only head orientation tracking. There's nothing about your position that it's it's detecting. Right, so you basically can look around. And one of the demos that I think is the most effective in the Gear VR is a Cirque du Soleil sequence. And so you're basically sitting at the front row and you're watching the performance happen around you. And it's just as if you're sitting in the theater seat. You'll look around because there's performers above you, performers on either side of you. But you're actually just in your seat. So it's sort of conforming to your expectation for what viewing a performance is like. But there's also, you can get games for this, right? So there's, uh, there's now an app ecosystem that is, I think, controlled by Oculus. Is that right? Yeah, they've got an app store, uh, certainly... I mean, there's a lot, a lot of different experiences, but they all usually find creative ways to constrain the viewer's perspective mm. so that what you do kind of falls in naturally into the limits that the Oculus kit can do. So it's interesting because, in fact, when I was having a deep play with this over the weekend, I downloaded an app called, I think, Titan Commander, which is a beautiful tour of the solar system. And you look down and it's as if you're a body. It shows, sort of shows your legs and you're sort of seated but you're wide, you're just whipping through space, right, left, and center. And after that had gone on for about three minutes, I was going to hurl. And there's this whole thing that we tend to forget that if you make the VR too good or don't do it quite right, that you're going to get a lot of people. And I know a lot of people who can not spend very much time in these systems because they get motion sick very quickly. I didn't think I was one of those people. I'm starting to wonder whether it was bad VR or bad Mark. Well, it's. I think when I um, the the Oculus first uh, uh, dev kit that came out what over a year ago, mm. I nearly everyone I showed our first attempts at content to was feeling nauseous very quickly. Right. That seems to have gone down a bit with the dev two and certainly with the Gear VR. Mm. Um, but it's 
it's still really easy to make someone feel sick. I'm wondering if perhaps we need an equivalent of like a food taster at our studio who kind of tries on the the yeah. experience before the developer does. Yeah. But it's uh, it's absolutely um, horrific when you when you muck something up and then you try to work out what's wrong. Right. And I mean, I think in the case of, of that game, it's because my body was visibly moving, but my body knew it wasn't moving. And when your body has an argument between your eyes and your ears, you, you start to feel motion sick. Whereas, again, the Cirque du Soleil, could have sat and watched the whole performance mm-hmm. because I was seated. The so so uh, so it's this whole other level of design that we're also now just starting to cotton on to the way that people don't use fonts the wrong way. And if you remember the early right. days of desktop publishing and the web and blink tags, everything was horrible. People's eyes bled, and we're kind of at that stage with VR right now, then, aren't we? Absolutely. And so you know, it's not that you won't be able to move the camera. It's not that you won't be able to do um, crazy things. But yeah, the parameters for a particular concept are really need to be explored, and you learn learning the hard. Okay, we go now up one more level. So we're at the top of the food chain, top of the price list. What kinds of VR, what kinds of products are we talking about there? Okay, so the probably the, the, the highest fidelity experience I've personally experienced to date is the H- HTC Vive. Mm-hmm. So that's the joint venture between HTC and Valve Software, who obviously as a games publisher have got this incredible wealth of very high fidelity uh, interactive entertainment So these are the folks who do Steam. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Steam dis- distribution platform. So Steam VR mm. will basically funnel that amazing collection of content into an, an experience that can take place with up to five meters worth of movement, five right. by five meters. So the thing that makes the Vive, in a sense, qualitatively different than the Oculus or the Gear VR or the cardboard is that it has sensors that illuminate, was it five square meters you mm. said? Okay. And so, and you can walk freely within that five square meters while you're in the virtual world well freely freely in in the sense that you still have a tether and this is where it's a really interesting time because arguably the most comfortable most accessible way of trying stuff out at the moment is the is the samsung vr because because you're not tired you're not tired but what you get for having this big fat cable at the back of your head is you get uh higher fidelity more all the physical tracking capability and that brings potentially the opportunity for the the experienced designers and developers to create a more immersive experience. But at the moment, people are still tripping over cables. Um, I've seen Vive broken by by people in a demo environment. So it's still a little bit fiddly. And I have seen people doing contraptions that will hang the cables down from the ceiling on a sort of cantilevered arm that will follow you around. And Mm. that... It actually makes a lot of sense to yeah. do things like this, but you're now talking about kind of sophisticated bits of kit. All right. So now there's there's the Vive, there's the Oculus, which is sort of at the same position in the ecosystem, which is being released, I believe, the day after this podcast comes out. So at the end of the month, um, we're going to have both these platforms out this year. And just this past week, we had Sony come in with the PlayStation VR. Right. What is that going to mean to all of this? Well, it's it's really thrown a cat amongst the pigeons because it's the, the lowest priced of the top tier experience mm. uh, devices. So if you own a PlayStation, it'd be about $550 Australian. Well, that's that's what everyone thought until the announcement. The words creeping creeping out today mm. that they're talking about potentially releasing a four point uh, PlayStation four point five right. to better support this device. And there is another catch, and whether or not that happens, um, you still it doesn't come with the camera. The PlayStation camera is a separate purchase. Mm-hmm. So there are a. But the total cost, the total cost of ownership is going to be still uh, relatively cheaper than the Oculus or the HTC Vive. Because for those, you have to get multi-thousand dollar PCs with big graphics cards and all sorts of crazy stuff. That's right. There's online tests that you can download that will benchmark your system and tell you, sorry, you need to buy yourself a new graphics card. Okay. Yes, which I have run on all my computers. Um, Okay, so... We now have so, and that's going to be a platform for more sort of AAA games, sort of thing, that kind of thing. The big publishers. Now, the Oculus and Oculus is doing its own store, clearly doing it with the with the Samsung. HTC has partnered with Steam, and Steam, of course, is a good platform for indie gamers, right? And so, does that mean that we're going to start to see a lot of indie content show up, particularly on the Vive? And is that a good place if you're a startup game developing studio for VR? Do you think maybe you're aiming there because you have access to the market, or where would you try to go if you're trying to build, say, a next generation game studio now, or just next generation VR studio? 
Look, I think um, Oculus has tried to get out in front with their um, with their store. They've really encouraged indie developers to put demos up there mm-hmm. uh, anyhow. Um, the ecosystem around Steam starts with the Steam Greenlight uh where you basically bid a bit like a crowd camp, crowdfunding campaign. You basically build a community of, of voting to uh, say, yeah, there is an audience for this game, get us onto mm. the regular Steam. Uh, I think um, game developers have been targeting st- Steam Greenlight in the process for some time, and it'll be absolutely no difference with, uh, with the VR side of things but certainly oculus is is trying to be a, a main contender to that and since it didn't exist before mm. you could argue that oculus might be a better place to start yeah. all right michaela i'd like you to stick around with us we're going to listen to an interview after the break with link gaskin who's the ceo and founder of 8i and then we'll come back and we'll have a little talk about what that portends for the future of virtual reality great you're listening to this week in startups australia we'll be right back Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'd just like to say a few words about Twista's sponsor's Braintree, code for easy online payments. Developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever payment system comes next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try the sandbox out and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. In Say the 30 years that virtual reality has been going on, one of the persistent problems has been have been getting characters that look more or less human. And that problem seemed quite a difficult one until I happened to see a demo of some technology from a company out of Wellington 8i. And essentially, and I'll let the founder of the company explain what they do, but what they've done is really created for my mind the first technology that brings a person in full 3D into virtual reality in a way that seems quite tangible, that you react like the person is there. And that's a big thing for virtual reality because we're not just going to be playing with bots. It's going to be a social medium, and a social medium means it's going to be working with things or people that we feel are real. Now, Edai, the company that did this is co-founded by Link Gasking, who is joining me on this week in Startups Australia, New Zealand. Welcome, Link. Thanks for having me. So tell me about the genesis of what you're doing, what AI is doing. So the genesis of AI came about when I saw one of the very first Oculus Rifts, uh, one of the first Kickstarter models, and, and everyone was gathered around this device, and uh, there was literally no content for it. Right. And my mind really went off into this space of wanting to uh, be in virtual reality, uh, not with computer game type characters, Mm -hmm. avatars, but actual real people. Right. And not only did I want real people, but I wanted to move around with them. Right. And and that actually uh, wasn't possible at the time. There was really only, uh, in terms of photorealism, Mm -hmm. Uh, the possibility of using spherical cameras, a 360 degree option where you stick cameras into the middle of a room, right. pointing outward right. and uh, and recording the scene, stitching it together, but it really didn't give you that movement and therefore that real sense of presence you get from three-dimensional people in, in, in a real environment. Mm-hmm. And so it took me a while to try and find a solution, mm. eventually tracked uh, uh, someone down in New Zealand, uh, Eugene Dion, uh, who had come out of NVIDIA mm-hmm. and uh, had been working at Weta Digital mm-hmm. uh, on Rise of Planet of the Apes mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and discovered that he had uh, come up with a solution uh, which solved uh, these very difficult problems right. uh, in a way that was very unique and uh, had created uh, a, a solution that allowed you to actually, for the first time, walk around somebody uh, that, uh, from from every angle. Right. And and the solution, and uh, what we'll do is we'll take some photos so we can post them to the blog so people can take a look. But the solution is 
uh, a completely different kind of green screen in terms of the capture, right, where you have all of these high-resolution cameras pointing inward, they're photographing a person, and then you're taking that photographic data and really, really intensively number crunching it to create this real-time 3D model. So essentially, the, uh, the 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 core physical difference when you walk into a set using this type of technology mm. is that you see these cameras pointing in instead of out. Mm -hmm. So they're around the the outside of the room and looking in. Looking in. And uh, and what is recorded uh, is what's on the inside um, of of that circle. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, uh, with a headset on, you can then take uh, those assets recorded and walk around them. Right, okay, so you've got this capacity to capture a person in very high fidelity. I've got this person captured and now you need to send it out for processing and this is like, there's an enormous amount of processing for a small amount of video, right? Well, there's actually a large amount of video, right. which okay, then that's right. is, is uh, if you think about it, every single camera being HD right. or, or uh, even 4K, uh, you end up getting a huge amount of data, mm. which you then have to somehow uh, uh, interpolate together and then uh, compress down into something that's playback, that can be played back on any device. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what you've got is the, a very interesting and a very unique uh, data problem where you have this enormous amount of data that needs to be, and it's it's enormous amount of 2D data, that's the thing, because a camera shoots in two dimensions, but you've got enough cameras that you can then reconstruct the three-dimensional image from this. So there's some magic, as it were, in that. So you've got all of this 2D data that you then crunch down into 3D data that you then have to crunch down into something that you can deliver over a mobile or over broadband. And what's interesting about uh, that delivery is that it needs to be actually rendered in real time mm -hmm. because as you move around that space right. and you're looking at that person from the angle that you're at, right. uh, that needs to be uh, rendered on the fly. Because you don't know, because you can't give everyone every conceivable angle, right? That's the thing. So as you're moving the camera around, right. Okay. So we're not going to store every possible conceivable angle of, right. of, of the scene beforehand. Right. Well, it's, it wouldn't, it's just, it's, it'd be literally impossible to do this. You have to be able to render this on the fly. Okay, so, so it's, it's, in a sense it's even more magical because what you're doing is you're distilling it down to the bare minimum that you need for this essentially video realistic model so that you can then pipe it into a mobile or you can pipe it into a headset and and treat it as if it were really as if you had rendered it from every single angle. Okay, that's a that's a fairly good trick. Now now that we figured out what the trick is, what do you do with that trick? First off, and we'll talk about the business in a second. But what what do you actually do with that? So what we found that the people want to do with that is that they want to build environments around them mm -hmm. and they want to recreate reality in the most realistic way possible mm -hmm. and match the realism of the people with mm -hmm. the realism of the environment mm -hmm. and the number of different concepts and experiences people want to do are similarly endless okay so because you have people any situation that involves people is now fair game so what are some of the now i I mean, I, you took me through some of the demos the other day, but what are some of the demos that you are finding are the most effective for people that you've been able to create with this? The, first of all, the types of experiences are quite similar to the ones in real life. Mm -hmm. So really compelling, engaging people and characters, uh, ones where uh, you, in real life, and are unable to get close to uh, the person performing. Right. So um, a big category is performance. Okay. So anyone that's performing, whether it's a, a musical instrument or uh, or any sort of drama, acting, etc., a dance, like a right. comedy, uh, is uh, seems to work very well. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing that entertainment, just as a pure category, is is a really great first mover in, in virtual reality experience Because the experience inside of the head-mounted display or even on the mobile is that you're actually co-present. And I think that's, you know, that's, we're, we're now crossing that line into co-presence with this 
person, right? And this this recording of this person, so that if it's someone singing your favorite song or doing an amazing dance or whatever it is. So when you put a headset on, uh, you you find yourself in this technology in in an environment mm. that somebody's created mm-hmm. or recorded, mm-hmm. and you're in there with, let's say, a musician. Right. And what we've discovered is that as you walk over to the musician and you walk around them and you listen to them and watch them perform, you get this sense of what you're calling presence, Mm. uh, but you also get uh, what comes with that presence of feeling like you're in the same room with them Mm. is that you get this sense of personal space that Mm -hmm. you respect of that other person as you get closer. And that provides you with some type of emotional feedback, Mm -hmm. which really which really uh, creates a really intense experience like you're actually there. Right. And that's a, it's a really interesting uh, discovery that we made is how, uh, how important that sense of, that res- that, that sense of uh, personal space is mm-hmm. in really pulling you into that moment very immersively. So you don't, even though you could crowd the person, you actually wouldn't do it because you treat, you, you, you treat the video, the, the three-dimensional recreation of that person with all of the respect that they would be due if they were actually there with you in the space. And so that's an interesting thing because that really means that somewhere deep inside of you, you've made, your, your, your subconscious mind has made a decision that this is a person and therefore we will treat them with the attributes of personhood, which is respecting their space. Exactly, and up until now, uh, there has been this valley, this uncanny valley mm. that people talk about with, uh, with uh, CG uh, people. Right. That, that the closer you get to making someone look uh, realistic, the creepier uh, it the gets. And there's almost uh, the opposite effect is that there's a some sort of a repelling effect of seeing someone seem almost real, but the mouth doesn't move properly. There's almost a zombified uh, effect of the eyes. Um, what we've discovered is by taking a flying leap over that uncanny valley, mm. by going back to video, mm. essentially, uh, and making it volumetric, uh, it, it has, has really opened this other barrier of personal space. But, but that really uh, has then uh, showed that there are two parts of our brains really acting in virtual reality and they're separating mm-hmm. um, in a way that we become conscious of that, that of those two elements. There's the, there's the logical part of our brains that say, yes, we're, we're, we're obviously, we all obviously have a headset on. Right. We're not really here. Right. But then there's this emotional side that says that, that actually uh, without us being able to be conscious of it is actually respecting this person's right. That's wired to relate. To relate, right. exactly. And you just turn that on. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia and New Zealand. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. If you'd like to reach an audience of thousands of people in Australia's startup community, that's investors, that's entrepreneurs, that's the people who are making these startups happen, I want to invite you to come and advertise on This Week in Startups Australia because every fortnight we reach thousands of these people and we continue to reach thousands of them because these podcasts have a reach far beyond the immediate. They get downloaded weeks, months, years later. And so they can establish your brand, they can establish your product, they can establish your service in the minds and hearts of Australia's startup community. If this is interesting to you, please drop me an email at mark at markpesci.com. And we're back talking to Link Gasking, who is the co-founder and CEO of 8i. Where did the name come from? Well, uh, there are a number of uh, uh, pieces of background to the name, but it's uh, a little bit how uh, we actually operate the compression technology. Okay, all right. So it it points back to the core of the technology. All right. You now have this technology. You've done a capital raise of, I think, what, $15 million. You're raising more money. You've got offices in Wellington, in San Francisco, and in Culver City, which is where we're recording this. And you have a beautiful studio here in Culver City. What, how does this become a product? Where does this go as a commercial venture? This technology is uh, 
essentially uh, part of uh, our goal, which is to enable content creators, mm -hmm. anyone that wants to take people into virtual reality mm -hmm. um, and make use of this new interface that's coming. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically to enable those people to create uh, with with uh, realistic humans. Right. So, and, okay, so you've got the technology that creates the realistic humans. How do people get access and, and how do you create, I guess, a business around that? So there are a number of areas that we're, we're currently uh, examining, which is the first one is, uh, is in a cloud process. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you record uh, re record people. Right. You send us the video. terabytes and terabytes of video, and we process that in the cloud mm -hmm. and send it back to you. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be able to take that th that data, mm. um, those holograms, if you will, mm -hmm. and and insert them into a gaming engine like Unity. Right. Uh, and then export that into an experience right. that you can then distribute on all of the different right. headsets. So it's, uh, to, to use some analogies, it's similar to the old days when people would send their film off for processing and then they'd get their photographs back that they could then hand to friends or whatever and get prints and do all that. So it's, it's a very rough analogy, but it's similar to that. There is a lot of analogies that you could make to former processing like Technicolor or mm -hmm. or or, uh, um, or Panasonic, but mm -hmm. um, it's uh, sorry uh, Panavision. Right. Uh, but you could almost uh, uh, it, it's a, a little different in the fact that uh, in this new medium uh, that footage that it, the the entire thing is based off of is two D. Right. So uh, so we can actually reprocess. Uh, as algorithms improve, right. old footage and get better results. So the capture is really the important thing. And as long as you've saved the capture, every time you get better at it, the output gets better and more and more realistic. Yes, and virtual reality is constantly moving forward. Uh, there, there are constant ceilings being broken right. as far as hardware and software. Right. And as those improve, uh, the, the realism gets better and better. Right. Okay, so I can see you having the, a core of a business like that. Now, does that mean that you then need to have strategic relationships, I would think, with, for instance, the recording companies and presumably then also with either uh, the studios or something like that so that you have... Because presumably these are the people who would benefit most directly from having access to 8i. Well, as a software company, we're reliant on all sorts of different hardware on right. either ends, right. Right? both on the, the, the cameras on one end and, right. the, and the, uh, the, the headsets on the other. Right. Uh, we, are, we have a, one of our investors is, in fact, Samsung, okay. and, and they've been very helpful. Uh, but we, we uh, really try and retain as much of an agnostic outlook as possible mm -hmm. and so that you can use any device to capture in mm -hmm. the future uh, so, so even even your mobile phone perhaps to capture perhaps in the future, in the, in the future right. even your mobile phone uh, where uh, this may become the go-to way that uh, even home users start to capture and uh, record memories right so is this going to in some way you know we had this era of home video that's now video shot on camcorders is if we, if we look 10 years out, is that what we're seeing on the horizon? Is that instead of capturing something that's 2D, that it's actually something that's going to be captured fully in three dimensions, so, or four dimensions really, because it's three dimensions plus time. So you have this whole idea that the capture and the thing that you're capturing has this quality that we've never had before. So about a year ago, we brought in uh, a mom, and, right. and uh, she... Uh, brought in her baby Reese right. and she recorded herself um, leaving a, a message mm -hmm. to Reese in the future mm -hmm. and she uh, got very emotional doing that mm -hmm. and and in fact it, w it was a wonderful message that she left and people really seemed to gravitate mm -hmm. to the concept of leaving messages and what would it be like if you saw your grandparents mm. um, as as young people mm -hmm. uh, leaving messages and just being with somebody like that mm -hmm. in a way that you just get a sense of them, right. unlike a photograph or, or even video. We saw a number of examples a few years ago where people would take a photo of themselves every day and then, you know, make a, a, 
a film of that. Do you think we'll see people doing a 3D or 4D version of themselves on a sort of yearly basis and they'll be able to see sort of how their bodies and their their attitudes change over that as well so that we have a real 4D representation of a person's life? Um, someone said once that, uh, that art uh, is a very interesting thing when, it, when you put time into it mm. and that time is a, a, a fascinating element to add to any project. Right. I think the same thing is the case with these types of volumetric recordings and we've actually started doing that similar to the 7-Up series if right. you remember that. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, we, I think we, they're up to what, 49 up now? 56. 56. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The the uh, we actually brought Reese back when uh, when she was just making some of her first steps, Mm -hmm. and she was able to then make some of her first steps through the studio. Wow. And then, in fact, a couple of weeks later, uh, some of her her grandparents came out from Texas Mm -hmm. and were able to put a headset on, Mm -hmm. um, find themselves in a room with Mm Reese, and sit down on the floor and Mm -hmm. watch Reese walk to them. And they were, they were blown away by that. And, you know, people are wondering, there's a lot of open wonder about what is the quote-unquote killer app that will get people other than gamers using virtual reality. Because there's, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's, it's all of these, it's weird, you look silly in it, but all these things. But if the experience that you're getting is compelling, people simply do not care about all the rest of it. They're just, give me the experience. And do you think that you've started to sort of tickle that? And in which case, are you then truly, because that's Kodak, right? That's what Kodak was to the 20th century. Take a photograph of the kids and send them to the grandparents. I mean, is that what this is then? I think it's part of what it is. I think it's actually even bigger than that. Mm. And I think that what we're seeing is that virtual reality and augmented reality are the new interface mm. for the internet, as mm. you yourself uh, sort of started to see even 20 years ago. Mm. This is now, thanks to the technology just coming down in price, mm. uh, it's really starting to become become true. And uh, and what, what that means is that everything that involves humans uh, and in uh, start to become start to become something that needs to be reproduced in this new way. So that instead of watching someone right. in a flat way on it on a on a screen on the internet, suddenly you're walking into these rooms and experiences and reliving memories, buying new cars. Uh, you know, there are so many options. So, of the demos that I saw the other day, I thought the most compelling was the boxing instructor. Where you actually got someone who's a real boxing instructor, and he's standing right in front of you, and he's saying, "This is how you do it." And I actually, and I'm not a boxer, but I actually, you know, did. It. I followed his instructions because there was something that was very compelling. So is this, again, not just the new family medium, but is this now a, a really good physical training medium because it's so embodied? I think our mirror neurons love mm. a three-dimensional volumetric space to watch somebody mm. actually perform something and mm-hmm. to be able to copy them back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we found with this boxing demo where we brought in a trainer, Pacquiao's uh, trainer, um, from a local gym, right? Um, and he takes you through these these uh, exercises. punching and exercises yeah. and stances, and you actually find yourself learning something. And I think that's what, when when people start to see a value add, right. where they're actually starting to learn in an easier way than they could in real life. I think that's where the leverage will really take over for virtual reality. Okay, so. I'm going to ask you a question. It's something I think about a lot. Is VR just a transitional form to AR? You know, is there ever... I mean, I think there's always going to be some cases that require full immersion, some cases. But do you suspect that in five or ten years, the majority of the cases will be mixed rather than full immersion? Because I'm thinking the boxing instructor, that actually would work probably even better in AR because you'd be able to see your own body. Uh, The answer uh, for me is no. I believe that there are use cases for for uh, augmented reality, mm. whereas there is a trainer or uh, your parents or your family joining you in your kitchen right. and uh, having a conversation like a virtual FaceTime. Right. But I also see how excited people are to go and teleport themselves to an, to another environment, right. uh, up up the side of a cliff or on Mount Everest, yeah. or or to go back in time and find themselves at the Colosseum. Right. There is so there are so many options that require a full immersion into a new space uh, that I don't think that's going to go away. So it's not an either or; it's a both and. Link asking, thank you very much for being on this week in Startups Australia and New Zealand. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and you've been hearing Link Gaskin talk an awful lot about the amazing work they're doing at 8i. If you'd like to see some examples of that work and some photos of our guests and things like that, then I invite you to come to our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com because this is where we put up all of the surrounding information for all of our episodes. There should be a special virtual reality version of the first part of this show up there. There should be photos of the guests, links to the work that they're doing previously episodes and lots more so please come by our tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com we're back at this week in startups australia with my co-host michaela ledwidge michaela now that you've heard link really talk at length about the vision and the possibility for 8i and you've seen the demo i have we'll be posting the demo to the uh, tumblr so you'll be able to take a look at it what do you is that that's something we couldn't even think about 20 years ago when we were doing vr the the convenience of what they're they're planning to offer is is certainly something i hadn't thought about it's um it's exciting. It's really exciting. It's a really practical approach to some of the problems between these high concepts of what VR can be mm. and what you actually need to do to make um, people, characters exist in the space. And I, I looked at this and I, I think, you know, particularly because that the embodiment is quite tangible when you're doing it. Again, this is in an HTC Vive system, so high-end system. But the embodiment I was feeling around these characters, and I can imagine a K-pop band and Ooh, the yeah. way girls go bananas over K-pop bands and having the K-pop band performing for the girl right there. And you think that, you know, it's always thought that sort of it's going to be the gamer boys in VR. But I suspect that there are specific instances of content that will work very well for women as well. And I, I, when I was in that environment and in those demos, I could see what would happen very clearly. Yeah, definitely, and also, and also, an animated characters interacting with with live action, I think, is going to be fantastic because you know, it's always been easier to have animated characters. Right. So you've got the Hatsune Miku, these you know um, artificial K-pop style nice. characters, but to have guests, yeah, you, you can bring the real band into play yeah. uh, a lot easier with this kind of tech. Yeah. And it's going to be some time, I think, before they can do this live because of the enormous sure. amount of processing that it takes or they're going to need a supercomputer on site, you know, which, yeah, if you have the money, I suppose. But it's it's conceivable that within 20 years, so another 20 years goes by, people will be able to do that sort of thing live, right? I think so. Perhaps even perhaps even sooner. I mean, I think that's going to, that kind of tech, whether it's 8i or, or other competitors, mm. um, the, you know, what to do with all of this footage that you record is the key thing. They seem to have got a really practical way of dealing with that amount of footage, right. which means that there'll be copycats galore as soon as they come to market. <laughs> okay. 25 years ago, one of the folks that I was working in virtual reality with said that in the future, and this is a future 25 years ago that we thought was really just around the corner, just a couple of years away. He said that people were going to take holidays in virtual reality. They were going to be relishing the black silence of just slapping on a head-mounted display that had nothing going and the headphones that were playing nothing at all. It seemed, I mean, I got to laugh, but it seemed a very weird idea at the time. After all, why would someone turn to virtual reality for relaxation? Isn't virtual reality really all about excitement and experience? Well, it's taken a quarter century but that brainwave from the early 90s is finally being realized. Joining Michaela and I in the studio are Eddie Kranswick and Saurabh Jain, who have founded a startup, Now VR, that's making relaxation tools for virtual reality here at Fishburners. Eddie, Saurabh, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. So tell us what you're doing. So we're developing a, an app called Relaxation VR, mm -hmm. and uh, it will take people into relaxing environments so beaches you know forests it will allow them to disconnect from their existing reality mm. it'll give them soothing music mm -hmm. and then it will provide them guided meditations so that they can relax in a different environment so it's kind of like you know we get the mantra of calm blue ocean calm blue ocean when people get upset yeah that's actually what you're going to be delivering right you're going to be delivering the calm blue ocean for people exactly that's right so how how did you get this idea? I mean, I, I, it almost sounds funny, but it's actually a very real idea and it has real applications. How did you get this idea? So late last year, I got introduced to VR in a big way. I'm mm -hmm. um, doing some work for a client and they kind of 
um, showed me the technology and kind of said, do you know where this is heading this year and where it's going to head for the next 10 years? And kind of really introduced me to it. And I was kind of really blown away. And I had that first real experience with the latest form, latest kind of forms of the VR technology. And myself and Saurabh had met at Fishburners, working mm. together on different startups. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of talking and started going to VR meetups together. And then uh, Saurabh has a background in, in relaxation as a yoga and meditation teacher. And um, I actually do a lot of meditation myself personally. Um, so I think when we came back at the start of the year, we really thought like, wow, this is, this is awesome. This could be a really good medium to relax people. And, and, and how can it be moved beyond gaming to an actual a use case that's uh, uh, positively impacting people? And we both kind of thought like, well, what about a meditation app mm. for, for VR? And then from there, it's kind of developed um, quite a little bit away, not specifically being meditation, but specifically being just relaxation with, okay. with the option to do meditation. Now, are you targeting... So, Michaela and I spent the first part of the program talking about the three markets, the high-end, the mid-range, which is sort of Gear VR, and then mm-hmm. the low-end, which is the cardboard. Are you, which of those markets are you going to be targeting with your apps? We're targeting, we're targeting Google Cardboard to start off with, right. and then we're going to move into Gear VR. Okay. the next kind of thing. And why did you make that decision around uh, targeting a particular market segment? Um, so we we made the decision to target Google Cardboard as it's the most successful VR headset uh, available. And Do we know how many there are? Do you know how many there are out there? I mean, it's it's in the millions, right? Five five million have shipped. Um, okay. Since Jan- uh, till January. Up till uh, January. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah, some millions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. Which is, I think, even with Gear VR, it's probably still in the hundreds of thousands or something like that. So you're talking about a, a, a global market. And you're also talking about the fact that people can buy an app and maybe, you know, send you a few more bucks and you'll send them a cardboard because it's not a, a big barrier to entry there. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. So, I, I mean, how are you going to do that? If someone wants to use the app but doesn't have a cardboard or doesn't even know about VR, how do you sort of educate them around that? Yeah, that was a interesting problem. And the advantage of being on Google Cardboard is that you can have the app being a normal app and or a Google Cardboard app. So if you look at New York Times, what they do is they get you into the app mm. and then after you're in the app and you're interacting with the app, they get you to look at their content in the VR mm-hmm. kind of experience. So we thought that was a great model. Um, we've In our app, when you go in, it's just a normal app. You can mm-hmm. see the diff- three different scenes. You can listen to the music. Mm-hmm. And then you have the option of going in and going in to see it through Google Cardboard. Look, um, I'm really. I think this is a great idea. Um, I'm just wondering, have you got um, any any um, recommended ways that people use the app? I've been trying for science. I've been trying having these on trains and on planes and you know in cars. And do you do you have a vision for where people are going to set themselves up? Is it going to be in bed? Are they going to have to think about you know, yeah, position? Yeah, that was actually another uh, uh, issue that I kind of came across. When you have when you put a mobile phone into a headset and you it's, you're, it's on your head, there's a definite weight that's mm. put onto your head. And in meditation, you want to relax the body as much as possible. So if you're relaxing, your head is going to move forward, and that's a problem. Yeah. So what we've done is we've asked the asked the user to kind of lie down, either on the floor or in a chair where your head is supported, so that the the cardboard itself is. You see that your neck doesn't have to be, you know. Um, Are you doing anything around? Because I know that this can be an issue with head tracking because then the head orientation is 90 degrees off axis to get technical for a second, right? But you've basically put the head in a different position. So do you need to then think about that from the user's perspective about what happens if you ask them to move and they're not just sort of s- sitting in a normal position looking around? Well, they won't be looking at the beach in the same way they'll be looking at the sky <laughs> okay <laughs> right right yeah uh yeah basically all right so, so there are and this comes back to this idea that there are interesting usability issues that it's it's not just around making an app and thinking about how people interact with the screen it's about thinking about their embodiment you know you're, you're working at their body at two levels in the sense that you're trying to relax them mm. so at one mental level or or sort of psychical level you're trying to relax them but at another level you've also strapped something onto the head and you can't yeah. ignore that because it's an intrinsic part of the experience definitely yeah okay so where do you see this going where where is this app and these kinds of apps where will they be evolving i think 
Uh, to be honest, I think it will evolve definitely past the Google Cardboard. Mm. Uh, it's not the most um, uh, comfortable headset. Mm. Uh, I really see it evolving into the Gear VR headset um, as it's a lot more uh, fitted to the user's face. Um, it's a nicer headset and it's a lot more comfortable experience for them. So I see evolving forward, it'd be moving into the, the higher-ender headsets mm. uh, and then looking further beyond that, um, moving into we've kind of looked at the options of, of meditation type teaching um, in the app. So mm -hmm. kind of using a, having a, having a meditation teacher guide you through a meditation like what we're doing now, but maybe having visual cues um, to, to help people to learn meditation and learn the right ways of meditation or focusing on in different parts of the body. So, And I mean, I can even see the AI technology being used because the best AI demo I saw was a boxing instructor and there's no reason that couldn't be a meditation instructor mm. that you film and then bring in so that they're actually there sort of in full 3D. Yeah, that's wow. right, yeah. All right, so where does NowVR go? Is the app, is your app released yet? Not yet. Um, it, it'll be out within two weeks. Okay, okay, all right. So this program will go to air at the end of March. So sometime not very long after this program goes to air, people will be able to see it in the, both the iOS and Google App Store. That's right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for giving us a glimpse of VR here at Fishpinners on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank Thanks, you, Mark. Thank you, Michaela. So I have been working in virtual reality for about a quarter of a century. And one of the most interesting things about that is that the first time around, everyone thought that virtual reality was going to change absolutely everything about everything. And I saw a lot of great startups start up, and I saw a lot of great startups die. The reasons for why this may have happened, maybe the technology was immature, maybe too many people were getting motion sick, maybe it was too expensive, but I actually worked with Sega Corporation on a design of a head-mounted display that was destined to sell, connected to the Sega Master System, or the Genesis in America, for about $300. And it was killed after an enormous public introduction because it was deemed to be not safe enough for kids to be wearing. And so as the PlayStation VR is moving to market, you have to wonder if those questions are going to come up again and whether VR is going to fall back again. I'm hoping not because the sense that I'm getting is that although I thought I was done with VR, VR may not be done with me. And it certainly may not be done with startups. One of the great pleasures of this episode has been that I've been able to co-host it with my friend, Michaela Ledwidge. Michaela, thank you very much for joining me in this show. Thanks, Mark. It has been something that I think we will do again. I think this is going to be the first of a few VR specials, and I'm inviting you here and now to come back and co-host the next one. Fantastic. See you then. Big thanks to our Twister sponsors, Braintree, because their support makes this podcast possible and keeps the specials coming. Thanks to Felix Walmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's a joy to listen to. Thanks to Link Gaskin, Eddie Kranswick, and Saurabh Jain for making time to come on to our show. We'll be taking a short break. We'll be back in early May with a special episode on employee share ownership schemes and what changes in the mean for startups. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.